What's up, good people? Three times dope podcast coming at y'all live. I'm in Atlanta today. Hey, hey. you know, I was born in Atlanta. I always tell people I was born at Crawford Long Hospital. Um, really? Yeah. So uh, I feel like I'm back home, and you know, my mama went to Spelman, so she gave me a requirement to make sure I go by the bookstore. But to, in order to get on Spelman's campus, you got to have a PCR test, which good I didn't know. Yeah, so they protecting them them queens uh, uh, by having all these strains. And, you know, they had a bunch of bomb threats and they had a town hall about it. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I'm in uh, I'm in Atlanta. Um, shout out to the big homie Ray Hill. Appreciate this. I rocked my new gray J's on the plane today. Oh, did you, get hype. For that? did you get a lot of compliments? People looking at you. I got I got a, I got I got cats staring like because them joints is hard to get. <laughs> You know what I mean? So I was, uh, I was, uh, you know, I was on 10 with it until I realized that, uh, you know, uh, the person in front of me put their seat back too damn far. Um, and I was like, yeah, whoever, like whoever invented this, the rule, you could just put your seat back, um, too far. It, like, it just bothers me. So, um, H free Huey Newton today, every day. Every it's day, black all day. Month I've been thinking about. I'm like, I'm running out of days. I got a bunch of pro black, pro brown, pro love, move mountain shirts. I gotta like put them in rotation to get them so we can be reminded of the, the struggle that we're in every day. It's good to see you though. Yeah, yeah. Tell tell the people you know something good going on uh, with you. Like, what's going on good with you? What's going good with me? So what's going good with me? You know, everything's going good with me, you know? Yeah. One thing I will say is I had a um, a challenge the other day, and mm -hmm. I really am proud of the way I processed it. I think, mm -hmm. you know, I, I mentioned to you, the old me would have either taken it personally or, or been negative about it. And when this thing happened to me where I felt some kind of way, I was able to immediately identify what the feeling yeah. was and what it reminded me of in order to do something different about it. So, um, so that was good. You know, I don't, I'm, I don't prescribe to that toxic positivity, like things are always great, but because um, they aren't, right? That's not real. But I think yeah. what we can do is be more aware of what we need. Um, I think I told you, I've changed my emails. I used to send my emails like, I hope this email finds you well and safe. And so the last two weeks I've been putting I hope this email finds you whole and prioritizing your peace and your boundaries. And people have been very responsive to that, especially the students. Oh, wait. Um, Hold on. So that's, that's my <laughs> I'm stealing that. Yeah. So like, I hope this email finds you. Why are you stealing that? Why? Uh, I am giving, I'm going to give attribution, bro. Like, man, I'd, rather, I'd rather choose violence. And so. Yes. <laughs> Yo, let's he, get, yeah, hell yeah. He, I'm on, I'm, I'm he feeling comes violent. into the podcast yeah. violent. I'm, not, I'm, not doing yeah, that. I, I'm gonna burn some sage next week and just yeah. yeah. So this, this is the intro. We're not we're not burning no sage. We're not doing any of that. <laughs> we're getting right to we're getting right to the content, folks. If you if you with us in the, in, the, in the comments, let us know you here as we uh take you on this 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 ride, right? And so we're starting off first with uh Dante Wright. Kim Porter, right? Because I like to do things to get uh when she's like soaring and doing all this sagey stuff and whatnot. I like to put things in to bring her back 
so we can have balance on the show. And so here's how we start in this song. The saddest cases I've had <clears throat> on my 20 years on the bench. On the one hand, a young man was killed, and on the other, a respected 26-year veteran police officer made a tragic error by pulling her handgun instead of her taser. Thank you uh, to everyone who spoke. I, am, I have been profoundly moved by the comments of the Wright family. Dante was very loved. His son has lost a father. And Mr. and Mrs. Wright, I cannot begin to understand the grief of losing a child. I'm so sorry for your loss. All right. Uh, Doc, you up first. What are your thoughts? You asked for this. <laughs> I mean, I went to graduate school in Minnesota. I have friends who still live there. But more importantly, I'm a father of, of an 11-year-old that I've had to talk to about this situation. And what becomes apparent to me is there's a lack of value that is placed on Black life. And I, I posted something through the blog, Philly Seventh Ward, about being sad and angry because I've run out of ways to explain this to my 11-year-old. And I, I just was so devastated by it all. And, um, you know, um, I, I just... I. I the fact that she had empathy for this woman and she made a mistake. Do you know how heavy a gun is compared to a taser? Yeah, I did that test. Like, what? It may have been a mistake, but like, you're a 20-year veteran and you make a mistake of pulling a 26, taser. 26 years. 26 years and you make a mistake after 26 years of pulling a gun versus a taser? Like, so I don't know. I think I it saddens me because of my son more than anything, because I've run out of ways to explain it to him, to talk to him about it. And I think that that saddens me. So I I, 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 I see my time because it, it really saddens me. Like I, I was in tears. Uh, H was cussing. Yeah, yeah uh, I was I was mad and cussing, and that's why I had to get the sage, right? Because I gotta. <laughs> I the thing that made me upset about it um, mm -hmm. was, you know, how I was hoping for something different, and so I think I told you all mm -hmm. it was on the TV, and I was sitting over here, and then I I felt myself stand up. I felt myself gravitating toward. I was just getting closer and closer to the screen, and like. 
hearing all the signs, right? I heard the 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 judge's voice drop in tone, which is what we do. I heard her cadence kind of soften. I heard her refer to her as an officer and like lovely and all of these things. And I was like, I, I know what's going to happen. I know where this is going, but I still kept watching. I still, my heart still kept beating. I kept hoping and waiting. And so what I said to y'all is like, the problem is both the system and all the things that it does that we know it's built and designed to do. But where is the tax and the toll that happens to us with this fatigue of hope? Like I shouldn't even have had to watch. I shouldn't be disappointed. Doc should have already known what this situation was going to be and already prepped his son to do that because we know, but even despite how much we know about how raggedy these systems are and what was going to happen to her and where they value life, we still kind of are hoping, wishing, waiting, praying for, for justice to come, for someone to be held accountable and, and reasonably so, right? Like we all make mistakes, but the way in which it was handled and the, the kindness and the, the gentleness that it seemed that she was approaching Miss um, Porter and the, the loss, it seemed like she was really much prioritizing her loss. And she talks about systems and she even mentioned in her final remarks that, you know, jail is used for three particular reasons, like her rehabilitation and like consequences. And, and she went through the reasons why this was not a logical consequence for her for what she did. And I often think about like with us and students, right? We would often say, okay, well, what is the logical consequence? And too often the consequence we give to kids is not the one that they actually need. A student who is having a difficult time interacting with other students shouldn't have a consequence that further isolates them because that's only going to make it more difficult for them to interact and be in community students. And so it just made me think about, um, how exhausting it is. You know, the fatigue of hope is a phrase I often use. I can't remember where I heard it, but that's what it is. It's the tiredness of the trauma and the tax and the toll that it takes on us to keep hoping and waiting and wishing for justice to be served. Well, well, thank you for that. I don't have no hope for that kind of shit. And so that's not where my energy lies. Uh, <laughs> I think that we waste our time with hoping that things are going to be better mm -hmm. for, for our people then it kind of it, it puts us in a in a negative space um i go into these situations thinking the worst is going to happen so that if something else happens then i'm surprised right mm -hmm. so i didn't this situation thinking that she was going to serve a long sentence or it was going to be that kind of way because that's not how, how things usually shake out for our people right we're yeah. usually made to sit in the background and watch people assault us, kill us, uh, and and get away with it, right? And so I, I'm just I'm sick of it. Um, I'm glad we're able to bring attention to it and use this platform, you know, to to bring attention to it. But in terms of like it changing, I don't think it's going to change. Yeah. Uh, you know, because we're we're not in positions of power, and then when we are in positions of power, we're usually govern for everybody, <clears throat> as opposed to governing for black people. Right. And sure. so I think that that's mm. one of the things that that happens with us. So I don't want to spend too much more time on it, but I'm glad that y'all are here and I'm glad that y'all were able to address it in the ways in which uh, brought you peace and made you whole. Um, <laughs> it sounded like you, it sounded like you come, should I need to keep a tally mark of like how many times you come up to me today? Like, no, 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 no. Uh, All right, so, 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 you need some uh, sage, Heather. Up next, up next, up next. Oh, Jesus. This is crazy. And so I'm gonna run the video. 
Uh, different folks in school. Oh, you know, you know, you're, don't worry. Don't pick your gender yet. Do all this other stuff. They won't tell the parents about these discussions that are happening. That is entirely inappropriate. To get into situations where you're not having the parent, you're hiding things from the parent, you're injecting these concepts about choosing your gender, that is just inappropriate for, for our schools. All right. Hey. I'm throwing you up here first, man, because, hey, Trump Jr., Trump Jr. is out here. So, H, what are your thoughts, Trump Jr.? I would love to know what he thinks happens in school um, and if people are engaging with young folks and saying, okay, who would like to go to the block center or the library center? Okay, who wants to be straight and who wants to be gay and who wants to be black? Like, does he think that this is the kind of conversation that is just happening as we transition between snack and nap time? Like, what is wrong with this man? What he should be noting is that for many young people, in ways that schools can be violent in places of trauma, they can also be safety in places of healing and community. And if a young person is having an issue and they don't have anybody they can talk to, and there's a counselor, a social worker, a crossing guard, an office staff member who they can talk to and confine in, that that could be the difference in saving that child's life. And helping that child to heal, giving them the strategies to have a conversation with their parents and adults. And so when people like him talk about things that they have no context about, it just reminds me of the importance of proximity. And we have way too many people making decisions and creating narratives about conversations that are happening in school. And they have never been in school and have never even, they like dreaming these fantasy conversations up. He should read a book and get a friend. <laughs> hey, That's a hey, but, hey, but, hey, listen, that is definitely a t-shirt, but it's a, I don't want to put this guy on any kind of pedestal, but he did go to Harvard Law, I think. I think. And? Cricket. Man, so, like, he, so if we're sitting and we're questioning if he's well-read, he is. I think the problem is this, right? Not think, necessarily. No, just because okay. you went to Ivy League doesn't mean you're well-read. No, no, no. I didn't, that's not what I said. But if you went to Harvard Law, then you would have had to read something in order to get out of there and then go and then pass the bar and do all these other things. And whatnot. Well, that so assumes he passed the bar. Huh? It assumes no, he, passed, he, passed. He, he practiced law. So he, he definitely passed a state bar. And so here's the thing. Right. And I want you guys to follow follow with me on this. Right. And so we are in the era of dumbing things down. And so when you get folks like a DeSantos, you get folks like a Ted Cruz, you get folks like um uh I forget this guy's name in in, in uh in Missouri or whatever, right? You get those Josh those, Harley. Josh Harley, right? You get him and you get those three together, right? And so what they're doing is they're dumbing down to the base, right? Or to what they perceive as being the base, right? And mm -hmm. these aren't like these are like uh college level <clears throat> low folks that they're now speaking to that don't want to hear nothing about black people right don't want to hear mm -hmm. nothing about the lgbtqia community don't care about any of that stuff and whatnot they only want to do things the way that they want to do things they don't want their kids to feel away they don't want their kids to feel bad about the things that their grandparents have done they don't want any of these things they don't want it in schools they don't want it nowhere right and so like what's the answer for that what's the conversation that we're now having because of this and like what are we doing i mean i think the thing for me that is um with 
DeSantis in particular is he's playing to the lowest common denominator in the Republican Party, right? Like this very low culture war um, that, you know, <laughs> is going to appeal to a certain piece of people, right? And as, as, as the sister just mentioned, he's stoking the paranoia of these folks, right? Um, and I think that, um, you know, we, we can't take the bait on stuff like this. But the sad part is people will take the bait. And they will actually think that this is the stuff that's happening in schools. But then my, my question to the Democratic Party is, how are you fighting back against this narrative? Right? Like, in all of the stuff I saw in Virginia, I actually never saw the person that Youngkin ran against push back against the narrative around critical race theory in a very serious manner to actually talk about what happens in schools. And that's the part that I, I, I just find perplexing when you have a bunch of super smart people, assuming, in democratic politics, like, well, are y'all going to push back in Florida? Are you... I mean, if Val Demings is there, who's, I think, was rumored to be like a vice presidential candidate. So they have someone on the ground in the Democratic Party who could push back. Now, whether that's her political position, I don't know. Right. And I'm not suggesting that she is or isn't. I'm just saying, like, what's the what's the runway to push back from the Democrats or other independents who just think it's all crazy uh, or even right minded Republicans like that's. That's the thing from a political perspective. Yeah, appreciate that. All right, so I think good segue, uh, since we're talking about critical race theory now, would probably be, um, let me share this screen, tap this open. There we go. Um, come back here. Nobody yeah, so, so here, here we go. Uh, tenure and... Uh, so tenure in higher ed, tenure in Texas, right? So we got the lieutenant governor of Texas, uh, Dan Patrick. And so he's trying to promote a bill, a bill to end tenure over teaching of critical race theory. And this goes uh, in higher ed as well, right? So like he's thinking about if you're, uh, you're teaching in higher <coughs> ed, uh, University of Texas uh, comes to mind, Austin. I know some folks down there that are, um, that are, uh, that are, that are teaching uh, some of these concepts or whatever, right? And so you're, if you're teaching it, you know, you, you no longer have tenure. And I know you both are in higher ed. I am uh, one foot in the door, uh, so to speak. And so what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, and, and, and Rob, we'll start with you because, you know, you, you were tenured, right? And so, like, if someone was telling yeah. you after you work for it, you know, here's what you can do and here's what you can't do after you work to obtain tenure, like, what would be your conversation? Oh, I would welcome it because I would actually have a full on legitimate lawsuit at that point and i would no longer be on the podcast i would be in <laughs> vegas after i won my settlement right i would donate money to uh girls inc dc to raise school and i would be like all right that's cool like you don't want me to talk about it but i have tenure right so and tenure doesn't mean they can't fire you but you can't you can't fire me for my content on my course, in particular, if it's built into the curriculum, 
and we're an accredited institution. Like, it doesn't work that way. So I, I think I would actually welcome it and be like, all right, well, cool. Mm-hmm. Like, let me let me go get this paper. I can mm-hmm. buy sneakers. I can go to the crap table. I mean, I can go from putting 100 on hard eight to 300 on hard eight. And, uh, you know, like I, I'd be I, I'd be good with it. But but again, I think that this is where what is the pushback from folks in higher education and for scholars who do this in in Texas? Guess what? They gonna have jobs other places. So it's going to bleed talent from the state of Texas and then they're going to look real stupid. And in some very particular ways um so i i got a chuckle out of it when i saw it. i was like eh, you're an idiot bro like you wouldn't even you probably can't even like if i gave you the tenets of critical race theory and then taught you the tenets and gave you examples 20 minutes later you wouldn't be able to tell them back to me and then come up with your own examples mm-hmm. so like i i just find the whole thing just amusing but again what's the pushback from folks in higher ed the association of university professors like where where are these things where is the nea where is the aft like all these like union organizing folks i need to see that they have a response to this to protect faculty and academic freedom and flip the middle finger to to do because it's ridiculous like, yeah psh, stop mm. H, what, what are your thoughts? Also, you know, I think it gets back to the previous segment and it makes me wonder like how often they are in conversations in higher ed where folks are talking about critical race theory. It's the same thing that you mentioned about it being like the least common denominator. And what I think it's dangerous in two ways. I think the first way is they are creating this narrative around something and making it real in a way that it is not. And I think that's problematic because there are young folks who are currently studying and doing research and trying to develop their conceptual frameworks and are thinking about their theoretical frameworks and who would otherwise want to include critical race theory in what they're studying. Mm. They may now be looking at that like, you know, well, maybe I shouldn't. Like, what is the damage that does to scholarship? What is the damage that that does to young scholars, to, to the research pool, to the quality of the things that we are saying are vetted and peer reviewed and high qualified, highly qualified, rigorous research. And so if a, if all they have to do is say threatening things that we know aren't true or make assessments about what critical race theory is, what is the damage that that can do to young people who are trying to pursue research? I think also, you know, in schools, aren't you supposed to, especially in higher ed, isn't the whole premise around scholarship and inquiry and frameworks and evolution and new considerations? And and so what does it mean if you think, well, no, we don't like it because it does this thing. We don't really know what it means, but we don't like it and it's bad, so we should throw it away. Like, what does that say about higher ed? What does that say about the purpose of being in higher ed? Mm-hmm. And right? This isn't I'm just going to like, school to learn a trade like you're supposed to be contributing to scholar you're supposed to be creating scholarly rigorous work conducting rigorous vetted research that then makes an impact on the field and on policies and on practices and if folks aren't willing to have those conversations or are reluctant to include them then what does that do to the quality of the work 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good point, H. And and I was always taught like when you're thinking about research and you think about un, uh, like uh, disproving a theory, you do that with research, right? So it's like it's it's like if you want to disprove <laughs> if you want to disprove CRT, like where the hell are your journals? Like where what are you what have you written? Like besides being a dog whistler and doing all these things that these folks are doing, like what have you contributed to the scholarship that'll make me say, hey, yeah, that's a good point in terms of like disproving this tenet of uh, storytelling? Like what the hell are these people doing? Like I don't understand, man. But you know, here it is again. It takes us back to the power structure and the power dynamics of the things yeah. that are happening in the United States, and it tells you right there who has the power, right? Mm. And it makes me nervous. Makes me makes me really nervous. All right, so we did this. Uh, we did, this we did this. All right, so all right, so let's stick to higher ed. And so here's the question, right? <laughs> and we're gonna put this on the. Oh the, boy. Professor, the, the former tenure guy. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, it's, it's like this, right? It's like once you cross the burning sands of an organization, you will always be a part of that organization, right? And so even though you're no longer at Loyola, you're still a tenured professor. Like you have that <laughs> in your belt, right? That is something that you can put on your chest. Hey, matter of fact, I'm going to get you a t-shirt that says tenure. Right, because you've been there. Right? And you, you know, say you've been there, right? And so, yeah, oh, boy. you got to say about this, man. It's higher ed preparing teachers uh, for success, not just in suburbia, right? Because we know that you know you can put anybody in in suburbia and be successful. But are they preparing us for success in the inner city, sir? In mass, no. Like, there's no evidence that that traditional teacher prep programs are doing that well. And I think for me, one of the things when I left uh, my faculty role in higher ed, because it was in teacher education and African-American studies, the best of my academic life was in AFAM studies. That was my tribe. I I vowed that if I ever went back into higher ed in a tenured line, I would not go into teacher preparation. I would go into ed leadership and policy, which is where my faculty role at the university is now. Um, Because I just, I don't believe that the current format of, of how they recruit and staff teacher preparation faculty ranks makes any sense. Like you aren't necessarily required to have experience. If you're super smart and let's say you've been a, I don't know, a culture coordinator in a school for a year and you got the right pedigree, went to, I don't know, some Ivy league school or UCLA or some other top tier school. Or Howard now, or Howard. Or Howard, you know, I mean, I'm assuming that's the thing at Howard. I won't speak ill of, of HU right now because I would give Heather fuel, um, but uh, of Howard University, let me stand correct and not call it HU, Howard University, um, to honor my sister. Um, <laughs> she, she folded her arm, hey, though, like... You see her, right? You see she gets like, <laughs> she, got, she was like... She was like... She was like... She, <laughs> she, <laughs> she got a water? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway i just i just find that you know there's a lack of three things 
You can have a doctorate degree, but it doesn't mean you know how to train teachers. It doesn't even mean you know how to teach. It just means you paid a lot of money to get three letters after your name and you wrote a really long paper. That's all it means, right? Uh, the second piece is that let's go with the theory that we're going to have these teacher educators in schools, right? I mean, in teacher prep programs. Mm-hmm. Why can't I have as a part of my load to actually teach a class inside of a K-12 school in partnership with, to El Michelle's point, and like a clinical model, right? And I think that that is um, true. Now, I will say to Renee's point that I think that, yes, alt-route programs that are clinically based make a difference, right? That are clinically based, it make a difference. But not all of these alt-route programs are the same. Some of them that I won't name have high rates of push out. I won't even call it attrition, push out of black students and have levels of anti-blackness in their pedagogy. You got some of these organizations still using teach like a champion, like, like all of these things that as someone who's a critical sir, race theorist, sir, sir, what's wrong with teach like a champion, sir? It's trash. We Why cannot talk trash? about it's scripted. It is wrote. It's like the it's like Ron Clark in like uh dangerous Ron Ron Clark, trash. Like <laughs> what's what's yeah. amazing about Ron Clark's story? In the history in the annals of urban education, what's legendary yeah. about Ron Clark's story? Nothing. Nothing. I was and now the, he has I a school in Free Huey. Free Huey dances. He heaven. He dances. Let me tell you something. I had handshakes and jobs and chants and songs and scripts for my kids back in the day when wasn't nobody doing any of that. And that's and that's not. And I'm not the only one. I did that because it was joy in our school. It was joy in our building because I knew I had to let them know what mattered to me if I wanted them to know that they mattered to me. But that's a different topic. My question about the higher ed or my comment is. Your question was, is higher ed doing enough to prepare teachers for success? And I think no, I no, agree no, with no, that. my question. What was, is higher ed preparing teachers for success? I don't, I would say I agree with Doc, but I also think that it makes it seem as though it's higher ed's job alone, and it isn't. Mm. It about what is the role of, of principals, of coaches, of school leaders, of mentor teachers. I had a pretty good program where I went. I got my master's of arts in teaching. I did student teaching all day, took classes all night. It was an accelerated program. I didn't intend to be a teacher. Where I learned to be a teacher was not in that master's program. That's where I learned about reading and writing lesson plans and thinking about language and anticipatory set and all of those things that they did. Where I learned to be a teacher was being in a great building with an amazing veteran teacher and watching every single thing that she did. It was when I got feedback. It was when my principal would come in and record what I was doing and then give me feedback and allow me to practice with her during my planning period and then get and then make sure that I was connected to things. So yes, I think there are some challenges around programs that are these alternative ones that are thinking if they believe that they are the only thing they need to do. I think that developing successful teachers specifically to have success in inner city schools that are often of high need and high poverty, that we need a more, everybody's got to do their piece. And what we're not doing enough of is investing in veteran teachers. I, mm. I would like, when I was a principal, I didn't mind getting new teachers because I knew I had amazing coaches. 
And when we did interviews, I didn't have to ask them questions about like, so tell me about, I was like, you know, how open are you to feedback? How would you feel about being videotaped? How do you feel about mm. giving others feedback? What do you do when you're having a bad day? Like I needed to know how open they were to the feedback and not how well they could do a math lesson because your most amazing math and reading lesson is going to fall to pieces if you don't know how to give feedback and develop it. And those are the techniques. With those master's programs weren't talking about mindfulness. They weren't talking about family engagement. They weren't talking about valuing community and seeing students for who they were when they walked in the classroom. They were trying to help me understand math, reading, science, and analyzing student data. That wasn't the stuff that made the difference in my practice as both a teacher and a coach and an administrator. It was all those other things. You see what happens when I get y'all riled up? Y'all start showing up and start making us a good show. That's what I'm talking about. All right. I can't talk about Ryan Clark no more? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. You're trying to get us canceled. All right, so... so, so. <laughs> if Ryan Clark will get us canceled, then we, we might as well just stop it right now. <laughs> first off, first off, right? So you, I, I think that um, higher education does not serve its purpose in terms of preparing folks to teach in the inner city, writ large. Because uh, I always get teachers and you know, in the conversation with them, it's like, I didn't know what to expect. I never thought teaching was going to be this hard. Um, this is extremely difficult for me. I didn't learn this in graduate school. I didn't learn this in undergrad. I didn't learn this in my teaching program. And so when someone comes to me and they tell me that they didn't learn this uh, in their teaching program, right? Mm-hmm. And I start to question, well, what the hell are y'all doing in the teaching program? One, the second thing is, mm-hmm. why am I not getting this tuition money? Because I'm now going to be preparing you to teach into the classroom Facts. for the next three to five years in order for Facts. you to get a, a, a sound um, a sound work ethic, a sound approach to So all this professional development, if schools are doing it well, that's what's getting uh, teachers prepared to teach into the class, yeah. teach classrooms and teach, uh, teach our babies, right? And then I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this. Um, but my wonderings are, why do uh, inner city schools get the least prepared teachers um, with the, the the least desire to want to be with those particular students, right? Because like when you go mm. into the suburbs, those folks want to be there. That's why they're there, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas you got folks that are using inner city kids as a training ground in order to get to the suburbs. Right. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you spot on. Right. I mean, I think that's very true. Um, But I also think it's about the economics of education. Right. And I think that there's um, blame to go around, but I don't want to get us canceled. But there are organizations (laughs) that are very predatory in their approach and their practice. And we've allowed that shout out to Detroit because we held out for a long time. And didn't have uh, some of those organizations that claim to be teacher prep programs, but they were not. And I think we need to have a real honest conversation. If we're asking that question. Kids in Detroit can't read. Huh? Kids in Detroit can't read. Kids in America can't read. Kids in America can't read. Not not, not as bad as it is in Detroit. I think a lot of kids all over can't read. All over can't read. He. You want to know why they can't read? Because we haven't invested in libraries. We made them say you can only read, do, and drop everything in read time. That's right. We don't enjoy reading. We don't 
support kids. We cut library programs. We make the libraries have to be organized by Lexile level and tell a kid, you're not on that level, so you can't read it. And then we wonder why they know how to read and don't enjoy reading. That's right. Shout out to the libraries. Shout out to the libraries. There's a whole nother Shout out thing to my mama, librarian. <laughs> we got we to gotta do better. And I think, too, you know, that turnover piece is also important. And so we see a lot of turnover, a lot of churn and burn in, in urban schools. And a lot yeah. of the higher performance schools don't have teachers that leave that often. And if they don't leave that often, then they're not creating additional vacancies. Right. And so if this program goes to get 55 teachers, but this particular school I'm thinking about with 500 kids that's in D.C. that's all the way uptown, they rarely had any vacancies because nobody's leaving. Why would you leave? You have a PTA that gives you $5,000. You get the benefit of, of teaching. You know, you have all of these incentives. Your building is nice. You can pay for other things that you need. Why would you leave that? But I also think, too, now, there are some folks who like to go and say they worked in Title I schools or I worked in this kind of school and now like I've earned my strike, as though that is some kind of badge or honor and credibility. And we don't think about the impact that that has on the schools and the students and the community. And exactly what you said, all that professional development that's poured into folks where we've taught them all these strategies, given them all this training and all these certifications just for them to leave and go. But seeing a teacher that can stay and last in a mm -hmm. school that is high needs is important, but it's about the relationship with the school and the school leaders too, right? I got some amazing teachers who I built up and was wonderful too, and they all and they have they're leaving and are gone now because the admin and the community and the and the ways the schools are will definitely also impact whether or not a person wants to stay in that role. So, I I hope they gave it two weeks or or, or however yes. much. Time that yeah, they need to go cool. in order to properly. Ray, you, you know, should tell the story right? of. So, so here, here's here's my new thing, right? I'm pushing for new uh, legislation, right? And, okay. and I'm doing this with my Republican colleagues. And so, what's going to happen is, right, when you sign up for a year of teaching, then you will have to teach that entire year. If you do not teach for the mm -hmm. entire year and you quit and you go to another school. Your license is going to be suspended for the remainder of that year, and you can come back and you can then teach again in September, right? And that what? What about a teacher who you need that's to what go? We're going for. What, have you up? ever had a Have you ever had a teacher who you were like this? They got to go. Yes. Like, you so then, what what do you do? Because I signed a contract and now I'm trash. I'm a hazard. I'm, I'm gonna coach you up. I'm gonna coach you. Hey, listen. So I've I've made a commitment to my teacher. I made a commitment to my board. So where we're not doing any mid-year like firings and doing any of those types of things and whatnot, we're going to do everything that we can or to coach a teacher up. And then if we're unable to do that by the end of the year, then we're we're gonna we're gonna part ways. But we do that in a manner in which it does not hurt the kids. So like I don't if I have it in my budget to go out and get a co-teacher to now teach with this teacher that's not effective then I know that that's not going to hurt my kids. And we need to have more leaders that are willing to do that and, 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 and eat that fiscal uh, the fiscal impact of doing such a thing so that the kids don't hurt because the adults suck. That's but right. there's no yeah, loopholes to this? I, hmm? I was asking Ray if there's no loopholes. Like, so if I got to move, and I'm in the military. Like there have to be loopholes if my partner yeah, gets yeah, a. Yeah, we, we can talk. We can talk about the loopholes later, right? But like yeah. we need to get we need to get something on the books first, so that we don't have this massive exodus. 
coming coming up, right? Coming up in the fall, I'm reading some things that saying that New York City is going to have to hire 180,000 teachers. They ain't 180,000 teachers. They ain't 180,000 people in America that are in teacher education programs that you can get to migrate to New York City. And so yeah. what's going to happen is you're going to have these programs that you're talking about in Detroit that Detroit didn't want. You're going to now have these programs that are now going to be recruiting heavy for undergrads from all of these universities coming yeah. in for two years and then making a massive exodus or whatever. I don't understand how that's beneficial to kids. Shout out to those programs because a lot of some of those programs that we're talking about that we're not naming are definitely uh, doing more for teacher diversity than uh, a lot of these four-year institutions. I would agree with that. There's evidence to to support that, unlike the CRT, uh, you know, crowd, there's actually research-based evidence on that topic around the ways in which alt-route programs actually are more diverse than, than undergraduate teacher preparation programs. And there is actually a movement afoot, and there has been, it's not new, to actually get rid of undergrad teacher prep programs and create like a pathway for like a I don't know, a master's degree type I would, setup. I would so so again that's another, that's another thing that was happening in New York, right? Mm-hmm. So SUNY, SUNY, who was one of the authorizers in New York, in New York State, two authorizers, Board of Regents, and SUNY. And so what was happening is that in some of the SUNY um the SUNY schools, SUNY charter schools, they were going to or moving to give the rights to the charter school in order to be able to um to certify the teacher. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, by doing that, it kind of you you saw the uproar from higher education mm-hmm. when that when that happened, because, you know, you got some of these big SEC schools where when their football programs suck, they go to the teacher education program. And that's how they feel. <laughs> that's how they feel hiring the Jim Harbaugh's and like all this other stuff. And so um, do you yeah. have evidence of that, sir? That seems Bro, pretty- you know, Listen, it's there. <laughs> I don't talk about things that I can't find in, in research. And then also, right, here's a trick for you folks that may be novice researchers or you listen, listen to these people that have PhDs all the time, talk your head off. You can always find some sort of research that will rebut their research. You just got to do the work. Google Scholar <laughs> is your friend. <laughs> He's causing trouble. Google Scholar, your friend, but we gotta get back to the show. Um, so okay, so so this one right here, we gotta talk about this. So I'm gonna set you up, sir. All right, so you know you're a Mich- you Michigan born and bred. This guy, Fab Five, this 30 year anniversary of Fab Five. Mm. Um, wow. So so this so, game, mm. set set it up, sir. Set set it up. So the story goes. That uh, that <laughs> when you say the story goes, <laughs> yeah, so what happened was what happened was is Jawan Howard's team was losing by sixteen, so we got to start there. They was taking his L uh, to Wisconsin, and they were pressing with I don't know 10, 15 seconds left. The coach of Wisconsin had the scrubs in or the reserve, sorry. No judgment, because I didn't play college basketball, so they'd probably be beating me, but neither here nor there. He caused a timeout because his subs were unprepared, and this is his logic, for the press 
that Jawan Howard had his guys running. Jawan Howard takes issue with the prep, with the timeout, with 10 seconds left. The other coach, I don't really know what he took issue with. As they were leaving, they come like this. Jawan Howard does this. Jawan Howard basically says, don't, don't touch me. Dude kind of touches him and all chaos breaks loose. And eventually John Howard doesn't throw a punch. I want to be clear. Somebody who grew up in Detroit and has had a few run-ins in my life, right? He didn't throw a punch. He, he, he gave a swipe at the dude. He didn't. Because if Juwan Howard actually wanted to punch the dude at 6'10 or whatever, 6'9 or whatever tall he is, dude would still be on the floor. He would have knocked dude out cold. See, we, make these, we make these assumptions. Hold on, hold on. Let me, let me finish like, as a Michigan all right. guy. All right. And so the thing for me is the punishment that they gave him actually isn't enough. Right? Juwan yeah. Howard should have been suspended for the regular season and the postseason. I don't disagree that my man put his hands on him. But, like, there are degrees to that, number one. Like, okay, yes, he put his hands on you, but he ain't snatched him up. No, it was, it was El Michelle. It was not. It was the head coach who grabbed his arm. Now, he grabbed his arm, but not in a way that warranted what Jawan Howard did, right? And I think this is where, for me, that Jawan Howard also has done this, not this before specifically, but had a run-in with Mark Turgeon when he was a coach at Maryland, right? And so part of it is like this, and yes, like I, I got a chuckle out of Jawan taking a swipe. I'm like, oh, he, he from the South Side, so you can't, he told you don't, don't touch me. Like you violated the code, right? When I said don't touch me and you touch me, I now have to respond. However, Jawan Howard is a leader of young men largely black young men and the rules are different right and again bob knight threw a chair john calipari we know they cheating at duke because don't nobody get three or four or five stars a year without cheating but that's a whole other story with nil going down and so jawan howard is a nice guy right um and i disagree right like he grabbed his arm and i i think that again I'm not disagreeing with the assessment of what he did to Juwan Howard, but Juwan Howard should not have done what he did, which was reach out and try to touch someone as Dion Warwick. I think Dion Warwick. Uh, <laughs> reach out and touch somebody's hand. The other, other, and Juwan Howard got, got a five game regular season suspension. He was fined $40,000. I think the other coach was suspended a game and fined $10,000. And I think that's appropriate, right? Cause yes, he did put his hands on Jawan Howard. But there are degrees to that. And furthermore, Jawan Howard leads one of the basketball programs at a flagship institution in America. You go anywhere in the world with a block M. They, and yes, he got touched first, but like, you're a coach, a basketball coach. And so like, he, he then should be allowed to swipe it, dude? Like, come on, stop. Yeah, so I- Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, and what and like like brother Ankrum said, right? Is that your uncle, Ray? It is. Uncle, uncle, uncle on the what up, Unc? Unc is uh, on we're the gonna have to have Unc on the show. We're gonna have to have <laughs> Unc on the show. On the check-in. Yeah. So Unc, uh, Unc, Unc is right. Like he got what he 
earn for what happened. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I am not going to excuse as a Michigan guy and a Jawan Howard fan. Mm-hmm. I didn't think he should be fired. Mm-hmm. Number one, like I did not don't that was not even an option, but a suspension is warranted because you cannot put your hands on someone like that, because if a player did that, they would be suspended. And again, yes, dude did touch him. Jawan Howard could have just pushed him back. There were other things that he could have done. But when he's when he threw the swing, I was like, oh, he about to get suspended. Yeah. I'll stand down. So I think um, so. I've always liked Michigan. I remember that's why you said it's the 30th anniversary. I remember like watching that game and like being so excited. I used to love Fab Five. Anyway, what immediately comes to mind is this whole um, this assumption that people can control black bodies. I don't care who you are. If I want to talk to you, you're going to look me in my eye. You're going to stop what you're doing because I'm, I'm telling you and that's what you're going to do. So that was like problematic for me. Correct. I also, and, and again, as a, as a black woman and, and knowing how vulnerable I can be in places where people want to control my body and my words and, and my existence, I immediately thought about that. I also took Jawan Howard out of it and who he is and what he's accomplished and thought about what we know about the brain. And when you are triggered, you got three things you're going to do, right? You're going to freeze, mm-hmm. you're going to flee, or you're going to fight. So I also know that that's whether it's Jawan Howard and he's got great accomplishments, but we know what happens to your body when you are pumped up and you're juiced up like that. Mm-hmm. I also want to recognize the thought, the thought, because it looked like it reminded me of the power of you as a leader and how young people are always watching you and taking your cues and your signals. And so... I remember one time when I was at a school and somebody from the community, it wasn't my school, I was teaching at the time, somebody from the community was posturing as though they had a problem with our school leader. And immediately the, the young people at the school, well, I was in Philly too, right? <laughs> Philly go hard. <laughs> and the kids and the adults began to also posture like, no, you're not going to do that to my, that's my school leader, right? And so there is this also piece like the important, the way that that the young people were like, oh, we reckon, got it. I'm sure that they knew that they shouldn't be fighting and they didn't want to, but the signals that we see as a leader. And so I think the consequence was logical. Um, I think, again, it just, there's all, again, as Doc likes to remind us, right? There's all these nuances, right? There's what was happening in his body. We often talk too about, you know, how people are triggered and it's a trauma. We've been experiencing yeah. trauma for two years. So who knows what he's been through, right? Maybe he's That's been right. through things that are showing up in a way that it's harder for him to control itself, but white people got to stop putting their hands on other people. Period. We'll stop. Facts. All right. So, so guys, we got, we got six minutes. You know how this is Abbott Elementary night and we got to get out of here. You know that. And so, um, so I'll set this up, right? And so today I posted something on Twitter, right? And so it was an iteration of uh, a, a little boy that had had like a tantrum um, uh, and was throwing things around in the classroom um, and, you know, kind of created an environment that some looked at as not so safe for others. Right. So what I did was because there's a lot of negative tropes that are associated with uh, that video. You got a lot of people that are like mass marketing it and like putting it out and saying this kid should have been expelled and all these negative things that are associated with how we treat black boys. 
And so what I did was I took it and I made a thread so that folks can know that, hey, we're only going to talk about the solutions for how to deal with this. I made sure that I monitored it very closely so that if anybody came in and said something tricky or said something that I didn't agree with, that I immediately put them in their place to let them know that that's not what we're trying to do on this thread. And so it brought me to this, right? Uh, speaking about the over-referring of Black boys to special education services. And so, H, throwing you up in here, um, what are your thoughts about this? We know that it happens. Like, how can we, like, how can, how can we get to it? Yeah, so I think one of the ways we have to get to it is we have to begin to understand who young people are and we got to evaluate our own biases. I think we got to be honest about the biases that we have. I've seen white children complete homework with crayons and hearing teachers talk about them as though, look how creative he was. He was so energized to do the homework, he just picked up a crayon and did it. And I've heard them, same people talk about a black child who completed the homework in a crayon and say, oh, poor thing, he doesn't have any pencils at home. Let me make sure that nobody's there to watch him. And so we have to be able to check ourselves and teachers when we're having conversations about all students, especially black boys. We have to also be thoughtful about what how we are talking about disability. Often when we talk about black and brown boys, we are describing behaviors in a way that makes it seem as though they, there's a behavioral problem, um, that they are violent, that they are distracted, and that this IEP is going to save them. We need to be thinking about what is right with children instead of what is wrong with children. Many of the boys, um, and I know SPED because at one point my school was 35% SPED. We had four self-contained programs. Um, many of the BES programs were all boys, right? K to three to five and K to three. And so I've seen kids who have been in crisis, right? That just wasn't a trauma. That young man was in crisis. This probably also wasn't the first time he had been in crisis. And you could, you could even see the way that the other young people were reacting. They were trying to do the right thing. They were like freezing, like nobody was like, you know, they were trying to help de-escalate this young man. Um, as I said to you, suspension and expulsion is never the answer. Um, again, we have to think about logical consequences. We have to think about restorative justice and restorative circles, that there are some circles that need to happen and some harm that took place in that classroom in that moment that need to be repaired. There are some things that we need to be doing to be proactive around how we respond to things. If there's a fire drill, young people know what they're supposed to do. You drop everything and you walk out the way. We can be training and practicing some strategies that can help de-escalate these mm. things so it doesn't turn into something that becomes just a just an unsafe situation. Like what I said to you, it was it's awful for everybody, but we have to be able to talk about that and be able to realize the genius in our young people, um, specifically our Black boys, and many of them who are into things that do not necessarily fit into what we think of as traditional success in schools needs to be honored. Our young people are creative. Our little Black boys are in, in innovative. And, and just because they don't show up and demonstrated in a way that traditional schools think is appropriate doesn't mean it's a reason for us to identify them and put them on a track for special ed. Yeah. Hey, Doc, we don't even have time for you to go into it, but I'm going to let you go into your, your closing thought. Uh, sir, bless us. Uh, my closing thought is um, a shout out to all the young Black children in particular who um are not only identified in special ed, but are autistic and have a speech delay. Um, and I, I wanna name 
Uh, I'm going to find it for the next episode, but there's a young brother who has autism, high functioning autism in Maryland, who's doing work with the police around uh, de-escalation with black boys who have autism. So I want to shout out uh, him, but also just name that as black people, we need to make sure that we're taking care of our kids, regardless of where they're at on uh, the spectrum and uh, really making sure we're getting them the, the therapy they need and the support that they need. Yeah. Um, Ace, before we get to you, uh, Renee Graham, y'all got a restaurant in Montclair. It's called Cuban Pete's. It's absolutely amazing. Uh, shout out to Montclair. Montclair got the Whole Foods John <laughs> popping off and just a whole vibe. Montclair, Montclair. How is Montclair, this part of the outro? Sir, I'm, I, I I said hold up for a second. Hey, Montclair, New Jersey is is a vibe. All right, um, uh, H, what 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 are we talking about here? Close the thought. That's Outro. funny. One of my good girlfriends, Lauren Tate, who's been a pre K early childhood educator for thirty years, is from Montclair, and she went to Howard. Shout out to Lauren and all the great teachers who are doing good work. Um, I think my final thought is just you know make the most of every day. Make the most of every day. I also want to recognize you, Ray. You did a great job of um, receiving some feedback, and 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 I'm really proud of you. So I want you to keep working, and I'm just so proud. And and just don't make that face. I know you want those people that don't like to nobody to tell you that you're doing a good job, but you're doing a good job. I appreciate you. Um, I'm proud and excited for this research you're working on. I can't wait to offer some more feedback and be helpful. So my shout out is for you, Ray. Ray. <laughs> So um, you know, hey guys, you have a blessed night. Uh, I thank y'all for coming. We'll see y'all next week. I'm, 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 I'm trying to. I'm, I'm about to go burn some sage. Um, <laughs> wow, twenty nine years. That's your people's. Who, Lauren, my friend Lauren Jay? No, Renee. All right, hey guys, we'll see y'all next week. Go watch <laughs> Abbott Elementary. Peace.